The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not, con- get, not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. You need to use 1 John 1.9. This is your opportunity to get back in fellowship, to prepare for the study of God's Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer for privacy of your priesthood to admit or acknowledge any sins to God. And we know from the promise of 1 John 1.9 that if we admit or acknowledge our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it is a tremendous privilege that we have... often do not fully appreciate to be able to gather together and study your word. That your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is your word that our Lord promised would set us free, true freedom, which is freedom in the soul. It is your word that is alive and powerful. It is your word that is absolute truth. So, Father, we submit ourselves to its teaching each week as the highest form of worship, that we may be able to learn how to think as you would have us to think, Because we know that the Scripture commands that we are to renew our thinking, to renovate the content of our minds so that we think as you would have us to think and that we can thereby glorify you in our lives. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we might be able to understand these things and that we would see how they apply in our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our study in 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2... And starting in verse 12, we come to a section that outlines the purposes that John wishes to accomplish in the writing of this epistle. This is the third section of the introduction. And he is going to repeat some themes. I'm continuously impressed as I read through 1 John with how John writes like our Lord taught. And we've seen that. We saw that in our study of John. In fact, I'm considering when we finish 1 John, we'll go on, of course, and do the little postcard, 2nd and 3rd John. But then I'm thinking about going right on into Revelation. I mean, we have spent the last three-plus years studying the Gospel of John and 1 John, so we understand Johannine terminology and Johannine thought. So we might as well just press on and take four or five years to cover the entire corpus of Johannine literature. But John, as I've stated so many times, was such a young man, probably 17 or 18 years of age when he became a disciple of our Lord. And like many young men of that age, he was impressionable. And he sat at the feet of his Lord, whom he loved and had a very close relationship with. And like many young men, they tend to imitate their mentors. And no mentor could be better than our Lord Jesus Christ. And and we, we saw many times when we studied through the Gospel of John that there were times when Jesus would be speaking and then you would get to a point in the chapter where you knew that Jesus wasn't speaking anymore, John was speaking, but you can't 
put your finger on just exactly where it was that Jesus stopped talking and John started talking. Because John wrote and talked like our Lord. And the same is true here in 1 John. The way he, he begins to develop an idea and then he adds another idea and then another idea like weaving a rope. And then he goes back and he picks up a former strand and weaves that in and then another former strand. And then he'll go to the next section and as he develops his theme, he continuously picks up these strands of talking about fellowship, abiding, walking in the light, walking in darkness, knowing God, coming to know God over and over again. What it means to love one another, what it means to love God. And as he builds this, we come to understand what the mature Christian life is supposed to look like. And fundamentally for John, it begins with right doctrine. That's what, began, that's what he begins with back at the introduction. He talks about what was, was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we beheld, and our hands handled concerning the message of life. So the focus is on the message. Verse 2 is a parenthesis. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Focus on message. <coughs> Excuse me. Went downstairs during the break, at the end of the break before you started singing, and led, was, I'm teaching some doctrinal songs to the kids. Probably strained my voice a little too much as we were down there doing some rambunctious singing. Don't worry, they didn't get the ghost. But we were having fun, and they were shouting, and I was shouting along with them, so I have a little tickle in my throat now. Anyway, the focus is on the message of life, what we proclaim. It's content. It's not just the form. It's not just the structure. We live in a day when people are more interested in the appearance of things, the form. And often my criticism has been of, of the way homiletics is most often taught. I've never heard it taught any other way in most seminaries is the emphasis is on the principles of oratory and rhetoric and all the uh, flourishes that go along with it, and somehow content is lost. And, and uh, Dan and I were discussing this the other day in light of the courses that he's taking on preaching down at seminary, and how the emphasis so often in the preaching classes is on that, and it should be. And they're making an assumption, though, that I don't think is valid anymore, that pastors are naturally spending all of their time studying, so they need a little more emphasis on how to present what they're studying. The problem is that, that that's not the realm of reality, and most pastors aren't spending the time in the study studying, so that what happens is you get uh, perhaps messages that, have, uh, that are entertaining, that are well-crafted, that have a lot of uh, um, literary devices in them and rhetoric, and they're, they're beautiful pieces, and I've heard some people speak, and it's just wonderful. But it's missing content. It's missing the information. It's missing the message. And so John says fellowship begins by having right, uh, a right understanding and belief in the message. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also that you might have fellowship with us. So the fellowship begins with having a right understanding of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We come to verse 12, and we've spent the last couple of weeks on verse 12, which states, I am writing to you, present tense, indicating that it's, uh, and it's an aorist, aoristic present, which indicates what you would say when you were writing at this instant in time. I am writing this to you, little children. And we saw that the word for little children is the Greek word technion. And it's important to follow the text here. You can't see this in your English. The English just has children. It has little children in verse 12. It has children again in verse 13 and again in verse 14. And it has children again in verse 18. Or excuse me, it has children in 13 and 18. And it has little children again in 28. Now, in the New American Standard, that little children in 2.12 and 2.28 represents the same Greek word, technion. Technion. And you ought to make a note of that in your Bibles because it is the shift between that word and the other Greek word, paideon, used in verse 13 and verse 18, that indicates what John is speaking about. He uses the word technion to refer in a fatherly manner to his entire congregation. They are, as it were, little children. He is the one who perhaps led many of them to the Lord. 
He is the one who is pastoring them, and, and he has spoken to various churches in the area around Ephesus. And so he treats them as his spiritual children because he was instrumental in bringing them to salvation, the new birth, and bringing them into the royal family of God. But when he comes to verse 13 and verse 18, and he uses the word paideon, he is emphasizing spiritual infancy. And there is a distinction there, and if you don't pay attention to the Greek, you can misinterpret the passage. Those words are crucial for understanding that structure. It says, I am writing to you, little children, that is the entire congregation. And we saw that it's a, in the Greek a hadi clause. It should be translated epexegetically for your sins. It's an explanation for why he is writing. For your sins are forgiven you because of, it's a dia plus the accusative construction there, because of his namesake. That is, because of his character and because of his essence. And we spent the last two or three weeks understanding what the Bible teaches about the importance of cleansing. And it's a doctrine that goes from Old Testament to New Testament. Before the believer comes in the presence of God, there needs to be cleansing of sin. Now, we're saved because of the death of Christ on the cross, but we still sin after salvation. So there needs to be cleansing. That doesn't require emotion. It doesn't require bargaining with God. It doesn't require trying to impress God with your sincerity that you'll never commit that sin again because God knows you're going to do it a thousand more times at least. So he's never impressed with our sincerity. The only thing that impresses God about mankind is the work of Christ. It's His work on the cross that paid the penalty for our sins, and that's the basis for our forgiveness. Now, He addresses the congregation at the beginning of this section with this thrust of the fact that everyone in the congregation have one thing in common. Their sins are forgiven. And now He's going to divide the congregation up into three groups. The more mature, which He calls the fathers. Those who are in spiritual adolescence, which He calls the young men, the neoniskoi. And then the babies, the spiritual infants that he calls the paideia. But why does he start with little children? What's the function of this first verse in relationship to the development of his thought in the remainder of the chapter? That's the question we have to answer. The thrust of this, this question, is to, or, or this, the thrust of this verse, is to get us to think about our motivation for the spiritual life. The motivation for the spiritual life is not so that we can get blessing from God. The motivation for the spiritual life is not so that somehow God is going to make us healthy and wealthy or more prosperous. That's so popular today. Everywhere you look, people are emphasizing the prosperity gospel. Even in a a book that has come out this last year that is now one of the bestsellers. Some of you are ignorant of this, and you should thankfully remain so. Others of you, others of you have contacts with other churches and believers who go to other places and they may be sending you this as a present telling you, oh, this is a wonderful book, it's blessed my life. And the sad thing is it was written by a graduate of a good seminary and it was a good seminary at the time he graduated and he's done many good things over the years. Uh, a man who has heads up an international ministry that has been used in many ways to get people back into the Bible, just to understand the overall themes and structure of the Bible. The book is called The Prayer of Jabez. And he goes into it and he takes out a little-known prayer from Jabez, who was a, an Israelite at the time of the conquest, who, and it's recorded in Second Chronicles. And in that prayer, Jabez prays that God would enlarge his borders and give him his inheritance. And as those of you who have been with me so many times as we've studied inheritance and judges and Every, everything related to that, we understand that that is a faith rest drill concept there. Because what, is, what happened in the Joshua generation is God promised to give them the land. And Jabez is saying, God, I'm going to trust you for that as I go in and take possession of it. And I pray in enlarging your borders is that I will be successful and prosperous in what I do. It was a legitimate prayer for the Joshua generation in light of the promise God made to them. But it's not for us. And this man begins the book by saying that for the last 30 years he has prayed this same prayer every single day, word for word. And that's why God has blessed him and why he's so prosperous and successful and everything else that goes along with it. And if you follow that same principle and pray the prayer of Jabez every single day for the next, for the rest of your life, then you too will 
have this same kind of blessing. He never defines blessing. And just to give you an idea of how horrendous this has been, is there's a website by the uh, perverted sodomites that have a prayer of Jabez, web prayer site, so that they can pray that God will enlarge their borders. And I hesitate to think what they mean by that, but <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, there are these prayer of Jabez prayer groups sprouting up everywhere, and I've run across people who come out of doctrinal churches who have obviously never understood a thing about doctrine because they're recommending that book and giving it to other people. They have no discernment whatsoever. And it's just a tragedy. God is not some magic genie in the sky and we just figure out how to rub him the right way. We'll get every wish we desire. There are no magic solutions. There's no magic bullet or quick fix to the problems in life, you have to have an understanding of how God works and how God functions, and you have to understand that we're not motivated in the spiritual life because of what we're going to get out of it. We're not motivated in the spiritual life because uh, God's going to bless us and we'll be healthy, wealthy, or whatever it is. We should be motivated by His grace, by the realization of our own lost condition, the realization of the depravity of our own nature and how unworthy we are of salvation or forgiveness, and yet God has done all of this for us. It's too often because we tend to de-emphasize sin because we want people to quit being so legalistic about it. We often forget how sinful we are and what a barrier existed between us and God and how depraved we are and how evil we are. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? That we are to the very core of our being, even as believers, we are sinners. Every aspect of our nature is still totally depraved. That's what total depravity means. It means that every aspect of our being has been affected by sin, and we continue to sin, and yet God has forgiven us. God has saved us. We don't deserve it at all. You know, many of us think we do, because after all, it's, it's me, right? Of course God would save me. I'm such a nice, wonderful person. He wants to have scintillating conversation on his life, you know, all of eternity, right? Oh, God, there's nothing in us that is attractive to God. God has saved us. And that's what should motivate us, because of all that God has done for us, we should be motivated to respond, to learn, to grow, to glorify Him because of who He is. And that's the end of it, because of who He is. So John starts this off, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. That's the motivation for spiritual growth, because we are forgiven. Now, that brings us to the doctrine of motivation. Doctrine of motivation. This is crucial to understand today because there is a tremendous amount of false doctrine, human viewpoint thinking, and paganism that is being wrapped up in the guise of doctrine, wrapped up in the guise of self, uh, self-improvement and spiritual growth that is being imported into Christianity uh, in the guise of, of spiritual truth. And too often, because we're not prepare to uh, discern these subtleties, suddenly we wake up and we've been sucked into some sort of human viewpoint scheme. First point, what does motivation mean? We have to define it as always. Motivation comes from a Latin word which means to move. So it's a basic meaning, to move. It relates to that which moves us or provides the basis or reason for movement in any direction. It's that which moves us to do something, moves us towards a goal, moves us in certain direction, changes our thinking. Motivation means to move and relates to that which moves us or provides the basis or the reason for movement in any direction. Motivation can come from any number of sources. We can be motivated, and we too often are motivated, emotionally. We're motivated for physical reasons. Sometimes we're tired. Sometimes we are hungry. Sometimes we have um, other physical demands that are placed upon us, and that moves us to certain actions to take care of those physical desires, some legitimate and some not legitimate. Our motivation can be well thought out in reasoned understanding of something. It can be based on knowledge. And as we think about the Scriptures, that's what we strive for here to understand exactly what God expects, what God has instructed us, and then on the basis of that new thinking, uh, 
the renovation of the thought in our soul, then we're moved in a particular direction. But too often we're motivated by the sin nature. Sin nature at its very core is driven by a lust pattern. The lust pattern is the basic motivation of the sin nature. And there are all categories of lust pattern. Approbation lust, the desire for approval and recognition. And we all know that there are times when we have uh, certain types of believers that we run into. Every now and then, somebody like that comes to church here. I like to call them the vampire Christian. You know, we haven't really covered the doctrine of the vampire Christian. But the vampire, remember, there's two things about a vampire. First, he gets all of his sustenance from somebody else. And we all have met people like that. They just suck approbation. They want recognition. They want somebody to talk to them all the time. Somebody to validate their questions all the time. Somebody to talk about how wonderful. They always want attention. And they just suck that out of everybody. They'll go to one church for a while and suck that church dry, and then they go to the next church. The other thing about a vampire is a vampire doesn't see his own reflection in the mirror. And these are people that when you hold up the mirror of the Word of God they don't see their reflection in it. Oh, that doesn't apply to me. That applies to somebody else. And we all know people like that, and we've seen them around here from time to time. So we have those who operate on approbation lust, and then there's power lust, the desire to control and to dominate, power lust, sex lust. And we've seen some tremendous example of that in the first hour study of Judges with Samson, a man driven by sexual lust. There is, there's a lust for a pleasure, There's lust for money. There's lust for material things. There's lust for all kinds of different details of life in whatever realm it might be. It might be material, physical. It might be immaterial. Uh, There's intellectual lust, the lust to know things and somehow show off that you're smarter and better than everybody else. So there's all different patterns of lust which motivate us. Now, they move us in one of two directions affected by our area of strength or area of weakness. The area of strength produces good deeds. So often we forget that the sin nature produces good. Look at the Pharisees. They were moral. They weren't saved. It's not divine good. It's human good. The Pharisees were tremendously moral religious people, but our Lord said that they were of their father, the devil. Personal sins produce sins, and sins of the tongue, overt sins, and mental attitude sins. Now, lust patterns move us in two directions in terms of our trends. Everybody's different. One day we trend one way. One day we may trend to the, the other way. Some people have, uh, just can't find out what they aren't satisfied with one or the other, so they bounce back and forth. One day they're self-righteous. The next day they're licentious, and then they're overcome with guilt, and then they're self-righteous again. So one, one area of trends, trends towards asceticism, legalism, and intellectually that always goes towards rationalism, that is in a philosophical sense, and that leads to moral degeneracy. Then the other trend produces licentiousness, lasciviousness, antinomianism, the idea that I can just sin with impunity because after all, Christ paid for all my sins, so, and I'm forgiven, so I can just do whatever I want to. Intellectually, this produces irrationalism and mysticism and leads to immoral degeneracy. But the lust patterns are what move us when we're operating under the control of the sin nature and under the control of the flesh. In contrast, what we're told in the Scriptures is that motivation in the Christian life should come from thinking, from thinking doctrine, from the doctrine that is resident in our soul and has renovated the thought in our soul so that we are thinking God's thoughts after Him. That's a very famous phrase been used by Christians for years. We are to learn to think as God thinks. We have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. We have the thinking of Christ. We know how Christ thinks. Now, we can only come to know that through a study of His Word. You don't just automatically know it. Later on, we're going to study occupation with Christ. And this last week I had an interview on the radio over the book on spiritual warfare that was set up by the publishers, and I was interviewed with a radio station in Minneapolis. And we got off onto the subject of of, uh, somehow of witness wear. I don't know how that came into the whole spiritual warfare discussion, but I made this statement so often that wearing all these little statements about Jesus 
just uh, trivializes Christ, trivializes God, and trivializes doctrine. And we don't show the proper respect and honor. So we stick God on a t-shirt. And um, you have the popularity of all this witness where in this statement, what would Jesus do? And we got off onto that. And I made the point. I said the problem is that most people don't know what Jesus would do. And the interviewer said something that was really rather inane, but I didn't. I let it go. I am tactful when I'm on the radio like that. I didn't slam her. But I, I did. I said, you know, simple illustration. Most people think of the meek, mild-mannered Jesus, and they have almost a pacifistic view of our Lord. And they don't factor in events like when he bodily threw all the money changers out of the temple, which took probably an hour or more to do because there were so many of them. And he overturned all the tables, and they were heavy, and they were loaded down with money. And he dragged all of it out of the temple. And then the little-known fact, we've covered it here, so you're aware of this, the night Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, according to Luke, when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and they were leaving the upper room, Jesus turned to the disciples and he said, who's got the swords? They produced two swords. And he says, okay, now that we're armed, we can go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, that doesn't factor into most people's view of Jesus. So when they ask, what would Jesus do? They have generated in the idolatry of their own soul some emotional view of this sweet-mannered Jesus. But, and then they decide what that idolatrous mental construct would do, and they do that, which is just usually a validation of their own lust pattern. They don't know the word. To be able to answer the question, what would Jesus do in this situation, demands a tremendous amount of doctrine in your soul. You really need to have a good understanding of who Jesus is, why he was here, why he did what he did, and why he said what he said. And if you don't understand dispensations, if you don't understand the plan of salvation, if you don't understand basic Christology, you can't come close to the right answer when you ask, what would Jesus do? So you have to know things, and the only way to know these things is to study the Word. And we have to learn to think like Christ thought, and that takes time. People today are so often untrained and undisciplined that they just they, they basically operate not on thinking, but on emotion. And it's subjectivity. And so it's easier to, emo- to motivate people through emotion, through inspirational talks, through some sort of external stimulation that ultimately appeals to the lust patterns of the sin nature. And this is especially prevalent in the motivational talk industry. And that's something that impacts, I know, many of you, whether you're a school teacher, whether you're in sales, whether you're in management, whatever your, your arena of work, sooner or later you have to go to certain employee seminars and they're going to try to... Uh, motivate you. One reason is because most of the unbeliever pagans that you work with don't have a clue about motivation, and they need something to uh, get them to become productive at work. And so, uh, obviously, paganism always has its system of motivation, and that is usually based on psychology, and the motivational industry itself is deeply rooted in the entire psychology industry, because the basic question is, what makes people tick? How do they operate? What motivates them? How can we get these people to be more, more productive? Well, because they, a lot of the employees don't have much of an education or they don't act like it or they're, they're not well trained. They don't care. The only thing that really gets them to do anything is to jack them up emotionally. So you go to these seminars. And I've, done, I've, I've worked in sales organizations several different times over my life period of my life, and, and it's always the same thing, and you get, have these salesmen, if you're a salesman, every week you go to these things, and you're getting jacked up to how much money you can make, and all the things you can buy, appealing to, to uh, your uh, materialism lust to try to get you to, uh, to produce more, and produce more, and produce more, and so if you're a believer, you have to be aware of what's going on in all these motivational type seminars, because many of them buy into lots of new age techniques which they kind of sterilize and cloak and disguise and, and, and many new age techniques are nothing more than Hinduism and mind control uh, techniques that are then sterilized and given new terminology and brought in to the American culture and, and they do all that just to make it more um, palatable. 
So as a believer, you have to develop a thick doctrinal screen in order to grid all this human viewpoint out and just to filter it out so that it doesn't start affecting your thinking. But we're all exposed to this kind of motivational uh, garbage that is nothing more than human viewpoint psychology. It's not based on doctrine and on right thinking, which is the motive in motivation in the Christian life. Point number three, in the spiritual life, motivation comes either from doctrine in the soul under the filling of the Holy Spirit, or it comes from the sin nature and the cosmic system. One or the other. It's not both. It's one or the other. It's either going to come from doctrine in your soul under the filling of the Holy Spirit, or you're going to be motivated by your lust patterns and your sin nature or by the thinking of the cosmic system. And this is why John is going to spend some time starting in verse 15 down through 17, dealing with the problems of the cosmic system and its impact on the adolescent believer. And they are told, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, then the love for the Father is not in him. So we're going to spend some time talking about the dynamics of the cosmic system and being reminded that in James 3, 13 through 15, we're told that the wisdom of the world, that is human viewpoint thinking or paganism, is earthly. Natural, sukikos, it doesn't have anything to do with the spiritual life, and it is demonic. Those three terms, it's the same kind of thinking, it's doctrines of demons. So we have to be on guard for the cosmic system. Point four, the starting point for the believer is grace. Grace is our motivation. Grace is understanding the reality and significance of forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins at the cross and forgiveness of sin in our post-salvation spiritual life. Ephesians 1 tells us, in Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That is uh, our salva- uh, forgiveness at salvation according to the riches of His grace. Ephesians 4.32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. The model is always what Christ did on the cross. That drives our attention to the work of Christ on the cross. That is to motivate us and shape how we forgive one another, how we love one another. All of that comes from an understanding of the dynamics of the cross. And when the cross is not taught and when the plan of salvation is not taught, people don't have a clue about grace. They can't be motivated from the right um, from the right motivation, and everything ends up being entertainment and ends up being emotional. Colossians 1.14, In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. These are not identical. Redemption is not the forgiveness of sins. Redemption produced the forgiveness of sins. Pre-salvation sins at the cross, post-salvation sins on the basis of 1 John 1.9. And Colossians 2.13, And when you were dead in your transgressions, And the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. That's the forgiveness we studied last time. Two types of forgiveness. Just like salvation is used three ways in Scripture. Salvation at the cross. We are saved from the penalty of sin. Salvation is used also to speak of the spiritual life. That's the second type of salvation. We are saved from the power of the sin nature during our spiritual growth. And then the third way the word saved is used is in relationship to eternal salvation, glorification. We are saved from the presence of sin. So first we're saved from the penalty, then the power, and then the presence of sin. The word saved, sozo, is used individually of each of those three different stages of salvation. Well, the same thing is true about forgiveness. It's used of phase one. It's used of phase two. It's used of phase one salvation. We're forgiven at the cross. That's the basis for all forgiveness. And then there is a phase two forgiveness that goes along with our day-to-day spiritual growth whenever we confess our sins to God the Father. Now, that's the starting point. That's our motivation for growth in the spiritual life. And we advance by learning about and applying and developing spiritual skills. This is at the core of what we're going to cover in the rest of the chapter. We have to understand this concept of spiritual skills and mastery of these spiritual skills. A skill is defined as an acquired ability in a specific activity. There's not something that just naturally happens. 
It is an acquired ability and a specific activity. It includes the idea of proficiency, facility, and dexterity developed through training and experience. I want to say that again. It's proficiency, facility, or dexterity that is acquired or developed through training or experience. Now think about that. How do you develop a skill? Think about whatever it is in your field, whether it's a skill in computers, whether it's a a skill in music or dance, or whether it's a physical skill in sports or something like that, or or, or carpentry, or whatever it is, something that you're good at. Think how you developed that and became proficient at it. First of all, you had to learn a lot of stuff. You had to go through some academic training. You had to learn various things. Now, you might have tried to gone through the process of trial and error, but you still had to learn some things about whatever it, was, whatever it is that you're, you're mastering. Then you have to practice. Now, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. And so we have to apply again and again and again in a correct manner. And so we practice, practice, and practice, and you, we, then we implement in a real-life situation. Think about football. A guy goes out there in two-a-day drills, and he's tackling, you know, or working on the blocking dummies, and he does that over and over and over again, thinks he's getting pretty good. But that's because they're not moving against him. And he's got to get out in a real scenario, in a scrimmage, where he's getting down on the line, and he's got somebody across from him who can move and who can push back. And now he starts implementing some of the skills he developed in a theoretical way in a real-time situation. And that's the way it is for us. We come to Bible class. We learn things over and over again. I emphasize confession at the beginning of every message over and over again just to master the skill. It's mechanical. Everything start, Every good skill starts in a mechanical way, but that's not how it is fully implemented. We never think of the, the, the ballerina on stage as being mechanical. And yet if we looked at her when she was three or four years of age trying to master basic dance technique, it would seem to be very mechanical. But that's only what we do in the process of learning. And then once we master it, then we learn to apply it and it becomes something that is graceful. So the spiritual skills that we have are those things that enable us to face and overcome the problems of life, the tests and temptations which come our way on a day-to-day basis. And this brings us to the doctrine of adversity and stress. And it's been a while since we've covered this, and we need to review it for everybody. And there's some new folks here who haven't heard this, so we'll take a quick review of the doctrine of adversity and stress. Now, I've been setting this up for several weeks and getting to this point. But I hadn't quite put together the idea that I was going to cover adversity and stress this morning until I was up studying at 5.30 this morning, and I realized I was missing an element. And I was impressed with how God in His sovereignty was teaching me a few things this last week because about a a number of things cratered this week between automobile problems and computer problems. And yesterday morning I was eating breakfast thinking, I only have weeks like this if I'm going to teach on adversity and stress. And at that point, I I wasn't thinking that I would be teaching on adversity and stress. And then this morning, I wasn't even thinking about that. Looking over the pastor, I said, I need to cover adversity and stress. So I need to find something better to talk about. Blessing or prosperity or something. (laughs) First point, there are two kinds of pressures in life. Two kinds of pressures in life. The first is adversity. Adversity is defined as the inevitable outside daily pressures of life that attack and seek to penetrate the soul. Adversity can come in two categories. Prosperity and suffering. Now, most people don't think of prosperity as adversity. I have a friend who... Got to know around 10 years or so ago, and he uh, regularly gets tapes from uh, Preston City Bible Church here. And when I first met him 10 years ago, he had a struggling business, and he didn't have much money. He told me, he said, you know, I didn't have two quarters to rub together most of the time. I wasn't even sure if I was going to be able to pay my bills the next week. I had all these employees, and I had this business. And now he has a business that 
that uh, he has an adver- annual advertising budget of between three and four million dollars a year, and he has the largest business of his kind in his entire state and several surrounding states. And he told me not long ago, as he was building a new house that was quite enormous, he said, you know, he said, you need to really emphasize to people, a lot of us always joke, wouldn't it be great if God would give us a prosperity test? He said, when I was struggling, I knew I had to listen to a tape every day. It was my lifeline. I listened to at least one tape every single day. But now that things are going great, it's really hard to get that tape in every day. It's real easy to get, to get distracted by all the affairs of business and all the activities and all the fun things I can do now and the fact that I'm raising horses and I'm buying cars and I've got all, the, all this money I can pour into hobbies and fun things and, and it's difficult to find the time to focus on doctrine. He said, prosperity is the toughest thing I have ever, ever had to deal with. Now, most of us want to have that prosperity test, so that's just a little word of warning that um, be careful what you pray for, you might get it. So adversity comes in two forms, and they both produce pressure, both, both suffering and prosperity. On the other hand, we have stress. Stress is our reaction, the internal response to outside pressure. Adversity is the inevitable outside pressure of life. Stress is the optional, optional inside pressure of the soul caused by reaction to the external pressures of adversity. And when the believer who is negative to doctrine allows adversity to penetrate his stream of consciousness and to penetrate his soul, then it is either converted into arrogance or emotional sins. That's the difference between adversity and stress. Now, point two. Well, let's look at a diagram. Here's the soul made up of self-consciousness, mentality, volition, emotion, and conscious. They're all interrelated. This is our soul. And the soul comes under assault from all categories of adversity. We have financial adversity, trouble trying to make those bills at the end of the month, health problems, rejection from other people, rejection from employees, rejections from uh, loved ones, children, parents, family. Family problems, health problems, taking care of health problems with young children, getting children through their adolescent years, uh, problems with elderly parents who are struggling with health problems and financial problems and other problems. We have problems with crime, being victims of criminality. Now, we don't have that much of a problem here. I was reminded about a year ago, a friend of mine visited, and his wife, as they were getting out of the car, his wife said, Now, honey, lock the door. So he locked the car door, and on the way in, he pointed out that in almost every car in the parking lot, not only was the car unlocked, but the keys were in the ignition. <laughs> but there are the problems with crime, crimin- all kinds of criminality today, career pressures, and many other categories of pressure that can, can affect us. Uh, everything from, uh, I've become familiar with mechanical pressure this week from both computers and automobiles. But all kinds of pressures that can affect us. So that leads to point two, that adversity is the outside pressure on the soul has two categories. The first is suffering from the law of volitional responsibility or divine discipline. Galatians 6-7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. God often allows certain negative natural consequences, or often allows certain negative natural consequences to um, come into play as a result of bad decisions that we make. Sometimes, when we all face it, we ought to have other, certain things happen as a result of the bad decisions we make, and they don't, and that's the grace of God. But normally we suffer negative consequences for bad decisions. The unfortunate thing in the spiritual life is sometimes we don't really feel the impact of those consequences for many years after we started the sin practices. The other category, the second category of outside pressure is suffering for blessing. Suffering for blessing and that, let me see, there we are. Suffering for blessing, and that accelerates spiritual growth. What happens is that that God brings suffering into our lives to give us an opportunity 
to apply the doctrine that we have learned so that we can grow. That's what James is pointing out in James 1, 2. Counter all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various tests, or various yeah, tests, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its maturing result. So we go through that process of being tested, and as we go through the test, we develop perseverance and endurance and applying doctrine, and the result is that we gradually grow increment by increment. Point number three. Adversity, then, is what the external circumstances of life do to you, and stress is what you do to yourself. See, we can't, we can't escape adversity. But stress is optional. How you handle that adversity and what it does to our own soul is determined by our own volition. And often the stress that we have is because we are choosing not to apply the doctrine that we know or exercise faith rest drill. So adversity is what the external circumstances do to us. Stress is what we do to ourselves. Point four, adversity then is inevitable. We will all go through various forms of adversity, and you may not be able to tell. You look across the congregation, you see somebody there, and you think, man, that person is so mature. They have it together. Why can't I have it together? And yet, often we never know the kinds of adversity that other people have gone through in their life or may be going through now. Problems with parents, problems with their own health. But they keep it quiet. They, they focus on the Lord and they apply doctrine. And often the maturing believer who is applying doctrine is set up at a target by immature believers who say, well, you really don't know what I'm going through. I mean, I've heard that many times. It just sounds so simple to apply doctrine. You just don't know what kind of... Well, we don't know often by, in a mature believer the trouble they're going through because they're not like an immature believer. They don't run around whining about all the problems that they have and complaining about them, making sure everybody understands that they're going through hard times. Adversity is inevitable, stress is optional, and is a result of our own negative volition. Point number five, stress in the soul always results in sin nature control. Stress is always part of sin nature control because we're trying to handle life's problems from our own resources. We're not handling them on the basis of the spiritual assets that God has given us. Stress in the soul, if left unchecked through confession of sin and application of doctrine, causes the believer to reverse his spiritual growth and begin to slide backward in his spiritual life and eventually become a failure in the spiritual life. Ongoing stress handled through sin produces instability and produces Christians that can uh, even at the extreme form, imitate demon possession, and it is all the result of stress in the soul. This is what it looks like. Stress in the soul, as it continues, produces fragmentation in the soul. In James, we're told that it is called a disukos, believer in the Greek, means two-souled. People begin to fragment, and you would be amazed at how many Christians... People who are Christians who are in such carnality, their lives imitate the most uh, rank, carnal unbelievers you can ever think about. And they seem to be crazy, they're, they're psychotic, and it's all because of the impact of stress in the soul. Point six, stress perpetuated in the soul means failure to glorify God and therefore spiritual failure. And at the judgment seat of Christ, everything is burned up, rewards are lost. And taken away, and they enter into heaven yet as through fire, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us. Stress means that we fail to achieve God's purpose in our life as believers. The only solution then, point seven, is the divine solution. And the human solution is no solution. That means all the systems of psychology and all the systems that man comes up with to handle life's problems aren't a solution. They may give temporary, a, a temporary alleviation of the symptoms and the problem, but they're not a long-term solution. 
But most people gravitate to those because we like easy, quick fix answers to life's problems. We don't like solutions that say go to Bible class three times a week and listen to a tape three or four times a week, day in and day out, taking in doctrine. We're too busy for that. 1 Corinthians 12 is the episode where Paul is dealing with the thorn in the flesh that came to him, which was a, uh, a demon, a messenger from Satan. In 2 Corinthians 12a, we read, Paul said, Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So he's praying. Now, he didn't know what the answer would be. We see many, many times in Scripture it's legitimate to pray. You don't know what the answer is, but God finally tells him, Look, I'm not going to take it away. At that point, once we know what God's answer is, we don't keep praying. But there's nothing wrong with praying for something until we know what the answer is. Verse 9, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. God was teaching Paul a lesson of grace orientation based upon this adversity test. My grace is sufficient for you. That means it's more than enough. I've given you everything you need to handle the adversity coming through you for power is brought to completion in weakness. God is demonstrating through our weakness His power, His love, His grace, and demonstrating His his sufficient word. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, that's rejection, with distresses, that's all kinds of problems, breakdowns in life, with persecutions, that's hostility, life-threatening situations, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the antithesis, because we're not relying on who we are, but on what God has provided for us. And then finally, point eight, it is this outside pressure from adversity and prosperity that provides the believer with opportunities to grow in do- and to apply doctrine. It is that... It's a test. A test, then, is defined as any situation that calls for the application of doctrine. It can be a small situation. It can be a major life-changing event. But it's the opportunity to either apply doctrine or to rely on our own resources, to depend on divine viewpoint or human viewpoint motivation. The overall flow of the Christian life is important to understand. Often we need to have a blueprint Therefore, we can see how the parts fit together. Phase one is salvation, when we put our faith alone in Christ alone. Phase two is the spiritual life. And phase three is when we are absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord, and then after the rapture, go through the judgment seat of Christ. That's the overview. Now let's look at it in detail. After salvation, God's plan for our life is to take us to spiritual maturity. He is going to test us in small ways and large ways. These are called tests of faith. That's an objective sense of the word faith in James 1, 2 through 4. They're to test the doctrine that we've learned in our soul, to give us an opportunity to apply doctrine. We have tests of faith. At that point, the issue is volition. Are we going to apply doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit and trust God, or are we going to try to rely on our own resources, which means sin nature control? If we go forward in the spiritual life under the filling of the Holy Spirit by applying doctrine, then it produces divine good. We have what John calls real life, eternal life. Jesus said, I came not only to give life, but abundant life. We begin to experience that abundant life, and our life becomes evidence or testimony in the angelic conflict to the grace of God. It produces steadfast endurance, and that leads to maturity according to James 1, 2 through 4. On the other hand, when we're negative volition, that produces sin, human good, and temporal or carnal death. That's what James is talking about. The faith that doesn't produce is a dead faith. Not that non-existent faith, but a faith that doesn't produce anything. It leads to weakness and instability. That then in turn leads to, if we stay in carnality, to spiritual regression and a hardened heart. And before long, we're no longer interested in doctrine, we don't come to Bible class, nobody ever sees us, and the next thing we know, we're wondering why we're having so many problems in our life. Now, the problems may not appear to be related by direct cause and effect to the decisions we make. But what happens is, when you start getting away from doctrine, 
all of a sudden things start happening in different areas of your life and you start going through all kinds of crisis and calamities and it's all part of divine discipline to get our focus back on the priorities in life. And then when we die, we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord, we go to the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. And there there's going to be an evaluation of our life. Not for salvation, not to find out if we really ought to get into heaven or not, but in terms of rewards for that divine good that is produced in our life, we're going to have rewards and inheritance in the kingdom, ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ during the millennium. Those that spend the majority of their time operating on the sin nature and are failures in the spiritual life, they're going to lose rewards. And John tells us in this next section that there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ and a loss of rewards. That's the blueprint. You've seen this before. We haven't gone through this in a while. I thought everybody needed to be reminded of this. And we're going to go through it again and again. Now, last time we saw that God has established a a system that protects us, a soul fortress made up of these spiritual skills. These are also problem-solving devices to face the adversity in life. We looked at a few passages just to remind you. Psalm 31.3, For thou art my rock and my fortress. For thy name's sake thou wilt lead me and guide me. Psalm 18.2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. It is God who protects us with His skills and His techniques as outlined in Scripture. Psalm 18.30 is, For God His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. It is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. Notice, all that is necessary is the word of God and Bible doctrine. Nothing else. You don't need to learn certain techniques certain manipulative techniques. You don't need to learn psychology. You don't need to learn uh, what your personality type is or anything like that. Psalm 119. Uh, let me back. I missed one. There we go. Psalm 91.4. He will cover you with His pinions. And under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. Psalm 119.114. Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I wait for thy word. In Psalm 144, 2, my loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. This is the doctrine of the soul fortress, and it's laid out, and we develop it through various spiritual, mastering various spiritual skills. Now, those are some verses you ought to take down and memorize. Commit to memory in your soul and claim them over and over again when you encounter various trials in your life. Now we come to verse 13 and Paul begins by saying, I am writing to you fathers because you have come to know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children because you know the Father. Three different groups there. This sets it up. And then he's going to come back and repeat in verse 14 and say something, say the same thing again to the fathers. It doesn't say much to them. Then he's going to talk to the adolescent believer in 14b down through 17, and then the baby or immature believer in verses 18 down through verse 27. We'll come back and look at that next time. The mature believer, the fathers who have understood occupation with Christ. They have come to know Christ. This is different from coming to know the Father. As a young believer, we know certain things about the Father. We know that He is merciful and gracious and He saved us. But we haven't come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said the same thing to Philip in the uh, upper room. He said, Philip, have you been with me so long and you haven't come to know me? You can be a believer and not know Jesus Christ, not having reached that stage of maturity. So we're going to focus on that next time and also get into the dynamics of spiritual adolescence with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this time to look at your word and understand how great your protection is for us. And this is all given to us by your grace. And that you have given us everything we need to face every issue in life. 
Yeah, Father, so often we forget that. But it is an understanding of your grace that is supposed to be the primary motive in our life, that we are responding to all that you have done for us, that we might glorify and honor you because of your character, because of your name, because of your magnificence. Father, we pray that we might be challenged by these things. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here who's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now they would take the opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Right where you sit, you can make that decision. You don't need to pray a specific prayer to God. You don't need to make a bargain with God. You don't need to reform your life. All you need to do is accept the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you, we would challenge us not to be satisfied with where we are spiritually, but advance all the way to spiritual maturity for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.